Psalm 23 is easily one of the most recognized psalms in all the Bible. Probably one of the most recognized pieces of Scripture in all of the Bible. But have you ever meditated on Psalm 23? Have you ever slowed it down and just savored every part of that chapter? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you know what it would be like to live an entire seven days without wanting anything? (laughs) Have you ever laid Psalm 23 next to the Good Shepherd, Jesus' story of the Good Shepherd? We said a couple of weeks ago that when we read Jesus' story or parable of the Good Shepherd, He is one that bears four marks. He He knows his sheep, he calls them by name, he feeds his sheep, they come in and go out and find pasture, he leads his sheep, he goes on ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice, and he protects his sheep. When the wolves come, the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But when you lay Psalm 23 next to Jesus' story of the good shepherd, you find a lot of parallels. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He causes me to lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his own name's sake, and even when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid. For you are there with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You spread a banquet before me (laughs) in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When I think about being in green pastures, I think about being content. I think about having enough, plenty, bounty. I don't worry about something that I don't have. I can sit in green pastures and say, this is is enough. And when I think about still waters, I think about being calm and patient. Not really unflappable. That wouldn't be like my personality. But I I think about having ultimate confidence in the one who is with me that even though what is happening may disturb me, it will not disturb him for he is forewarned and he is fully prepared. And when I think about paths of righteousness or right paths. I think about innocence. I remember what it is like to feel clean. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me into places of green pasture, still waters, and right paths. In John chapter 10, the word that Jesus uses is abundant life. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come 
that they might have life and have it to the full or abundant life. Remember from past conversations, whenever the Bible talks about life, it doesn't just mean the heart is beating, the blood is flowing. It's talking about someone's life getting larger. Wherever there is life, things are expanding. They're growing. They're becoming more like the thing they were created to be in the first place. They're open, alive. And when things are dying, they're diminishing. They're getting more fragile. They're losing power. They're pulling themselves away. They're getting smaller. So Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. And if you could ask him, what do you mean by that? He might say, I have come to lead you into green pastures next to still waters in right paths. I have come so your life will be enough, so you will be content. You will be satisfied with what you have and where you are. And I have come so that you can be calm and you can be patient and you can have confidence in the future instead of always being afraid. And I've come that you might know innocence and cleanness and purity and simplicity. This is life. I do not always cooperate with that. And in places where I don't, my life gets smaller, more entrenched, more bound, captive, tied down. But in places where I do, <laughs> it's larger, and I get freer, and I get more genuine, and more spontaneous, more unscripted, and yet at the same time, more, more pure, more focused. As I read Psalm 23, um, something strikes me, a couple of things strike me. One of them is, I am the shepherd over the people that God has entrusted to my care. And yet, all the while I am the shepherd, I have a shepherd who is over me. So if I'm reading Scripture right, these people have two shepherds. They have the Lord, my shepherd, and they have me. <laughs> At the same time, if I'm reading Scripture right, in the prophets, God consistently says, my people are wandering and going astray but I will find them, and then I will appoint a shepherd over them, my servant David, and he will tend to them. So if I'm reading this right, the one who the Lord appointed over his people is the one who writes Psalm 23 and says, the Lord is my shepherd. So David is in these areas, he is somewhere between the Lord, my shepherd, 
and the people that God has entrusted to his care. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it's the same thing. Peter says, as shepherds of the flock, tend to the flock that is under your care, not lording it with authority over them, but being examples. So when the chief shepherd shall appear, then you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. One more time, he sees me somewhere between himself and the people that are under my care, which leads to the first big discovery. It's the first thing we often overlook. The best thing that I can do for these people is to walk more closely with Him. When we started talking about this some weeks ago, maybe you, like me, looked at these four marks of a shepherd and immediately said to yourself, how can I get stronger in these four areas? And so maybe you, like I, once started reading stuff and started talking to people and saying, tell me how you shepherd people. Tell me what you do to know people and how you learn to feed people because I have to get stronger at that. But if I'm reading these Psalms right and I'm reading the Old and New Testament right, what I need to do first is to go back to the Lord, my shepherd, because in the end, these people trust me only because they think I trust Him. The reason they will listen to me is because they think I am listening to Him. The reason they follow me is because they think I follow Him. The reason they feel safe with me is because they think I am safe with Him. And so the authority that I have as a shepherd is never my own. It is always the one in front of me. These people really belong to Him. He has simply put them in front of me at this time so that I can help him take care of them. But one more time, the best thing I can do for them is to get stronger and better and closer with him. So I've started praying differently. I need to move this way now, not just this way. I need to look up at what is over me and start talking to Him before I look in at my little circle and start trying to figure them out. So I am asking God for hunger. I'm asking God to give me the gift of wonder, of mystery. So I do not get bored with the horror of the same old thing. The prophet Jeremiah says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor let the strong man glory in his strength, nor the rich man glory in his riches, but let every man glory in this. That he knows and understands me, for I am the Lord. I don't have anything better than this. Whoever you meet with during the week, you don't have a better answer 
than Jesus. If that's too simple for you, then start there anyway. You don't have a better answer than that. I'm praying for the gift of comprehension. Here's why. I was born with a curious mind. And so the moment I don't know something, I will throw myself into the pursuit of learning it. But then just as quickly as I learn it, I disengage. I get bored with it. I want to move on. I get tired. And so as someone who is constantly in front of other people, always teaching them something that I understand, the temptation is to only prepare something so I can serve it. I was in a restaurant some years ago, and I asked the waitress, what do you recommend here? She said, well, I don't really know. I don't eat here much. That's a scary recommendation. Now, if I understand her right, what she's saying is, I go to the kitchen, and when they cook it up, I bring it to your table, and you eat it. But I myself don't eat it. If I'm not careful, I'll do this as a leader or a pastor or a shepherd. I will study only what I need to study in order to hand it to somebody else so they can eat it. But I won't actually take it myself. I'll read books on theology. I'll read books about the meaning of Scripture. And as soon as God utters something to me, I'll sense, oh, i got to tell somebody. And that's just like carrying the plate to the table and then going somewhere else to eat. So I'm asking God to give me an appetite to comprehend the Scripture. I didn't say understand it. I do understand it. And that's the problem. I sometimes understand it and just let it go. But what I want is to know the love of God with a knowledge that surpasses knowledge. I want the peace of God that passes understanding, that exceeds the realm of scholasticism. Can I say this to a college church? Because we all are neck deep in information. And sometimes have information overload people. So that we become impervious to the things we are passing on. I'm asking God to give me the gift of comprehension. To hear it, read it, see it, and not be able to forget it. I'm asking God to give me the gift of faith. Courage, if you will. Here's why. By nature, I like to know everything. I like to know before I start something how it's going to end. If there are three possible outcomes, I'd like to know all three so that when I'm mid-course, I can make a mid-course adjustment and not be surprised. But life doesn't work that way. Not long ago, I was reading a piece by Oswald Chambers on the, on the life of Abraham. And what he says is, when God calls us, We never quite know what he is calling us to. 
Because the call of God is a call into companionship with God Himself. Believing that He knows what He's up to. So when God calls me, the only proper response is immediate obedience. It is not to weigh the pros and cons. It is not to negotiate with God. Well, first, tell me what you're going to do. As if, as if He needs me to sign off on this. It is simply to obey with courage. Chambers said, we have nothing to do with what happens after we obey. That is all up to Him. And if you leave me to myself, I will never get there. I am asking God as a shepherd, you have to make me more faithful and more courageous. I am asking that God will make me more confident. Not only do I doubt futures, I doubt me. I doubt mine. Never feel as if what I have or what I'm about to do is adequate. Never feel as if what I have prepared for is actually going to accomplish it. And sometimes that feeling will hold me back from the thing that God is asking me to do. So I'm asking God to give me a spirit of confidence, not self-confidence, but confidence in the fact that He is there. Now watch what happens. As God begins to build my life in that direction toward Him, I automatically become more useful to them. There's a second thing I noticed. Just as God is my shepherd, the Lord is their shepherd. The people that He has entrusted to my care, He is also their shepherd. Never underestimate this person's desire or capacity for knowing God. He or she will surprise you. I was maybe 25 years old when I did a, two funerals in three days' time. I'd done a bunch of funerals by that time, but never one like this. Two brothers had gotten into a fight, and in the middle of rage, the younger brother took a baseball bat and hit the older brother over the head, not once but three or four times, knocked him unconscious, put him in a coma. They put him in the ICU awaiting the outcome. They took the younger brother and put him in jail. And while he was in jail, hearing the condition of his older brother, hung himself. Had that funeral on a Friday. On the day of the funeral, word got out that the older brother was taken off life support. He died, and I had that funeral on a Monday. So on a Friday, I had a funeral for a victim of suicide, and on a Monday, I had a funeral for a victim of homicide. I remember standing in front of 
the packed room. The free press was outside, leaning in the door, waiting for some information. Nobody told them anything. Film director said to me, be careful what you say. They're going to write it down. Here's a list of things you cannot say. No pressure. I looked out over a sea of faces leaning in the door, every seat occupied, sitting along the side, and about three rows back, there was two solid rows of young guys, all of them, all dressed alike. They were wearing dark, gothic, black, long trench coats. They had hair out over their shoulders. They just sat there and stared at everything we put in front of them. The scripture was read, somebody did a song, and they were unflinching. Time came to get up and speak, and I do what all speakers do. you got 12 to 15 minutes in a homily. I'm assessing the congregation. I read two or three rows back, looked at those guys. I gave them 60 seconds to get on board. They never moved. I bailed. I said, forget them. I'm going after the rest of the audience. I'm going to speak to them. This is their funeral. They're just here out of duty. Time came for everyone to stand and file and go by the casket. And I stood at the head of the casket as all pastors do. And as that two row of guys filed out of their seats and came in front of the casket, one of them, little short guy, long black trench coat, stopped in front of the casket for a moment. He looked down. Then he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a little piece of paper and he laid it over the hands of the deceased. He moved on. Well, I'm doing what you're doing. I'm wondering what's on it. So in as polite a way as possible, I started to inch my way over. (laughs) When I got in front of that casket, I looked down to read that little piece of paper. It was a religious tract. In big, bold letters, it said, how to find God. I never would have guessed that row would have come up with that. I made a note to myself that day. Never underestimate that person's desire or capacity for knowing and apprehending God. Listen to me. Everybody wants God. You don't know anyone who doesn't want green pastures, still waters, and ripe paths. You've never met anyone. It doesn't matter how irreligious a person seems to you. They're simply going after the same thing you're going after in another way. The person farthest from God still wants green pastures. That's why they move from purchase to purchase. From relationship to relationship. That's why people overspend, overcommit, overwork, and overconsume. They are looking for a place where they can say, this is enough. And until they find him, they'll keep drifting. Now there are a thousand other diagnoses out there. But what people want in their core 
is to be satisfied and content. It's why they throw themselves in a thousand different directions. Whenever you see a person who drifts aimlessly from one thing to another, when you see them buried under mounds of shame, when you see them punishing themselves today for something that they did years ago, when you see them concocting their own religious formulas so that they have something to believe in, they're searching for right paths. They want innocence. They want cleanness. We just call it something else. But at the core, that's what people want. When people throw themselves into rage or they give themselves to addictions, when they try to control everything and everyone around them, they want still waters. But they can't find it. What I'm telling you is we cannot underestimate this person's capacity and desire for God. He doesn't have words for it. But you cannot think that just because he's not using the word God, he isn't interested in God. Just because you can't get them to talk about spiritual things, you can't think that they're not spiritual. You have to learn to listen to secular things in a spiritual way. For when people talk, they are constantly dropping clues along the conversation that lead us to a deeper understanding of who they are and what's happening. Every person that I talk to, every person, and when you talk to me, it's true of me. But you won't know it until you go looking for it. Every one of us has either some wound from the past or some Achilles in the present. Every one of us has a secret. It's not a dark, dirty secret. It's something that other people don't know. And so as I'm in normal conversations, I'm listening for things that they're dropping along the way that might help me know them better. I'm not changing the conversation. I'm listening differently. I'm asking God to give me and my words more gravitas. Praying about this about two months ago. I think I heard the Lord say, here's what's next for you. The economy of speech. I said, what does that mean? He said, you talk too much. (laughs) Now, y'all know that. But words are like dollar bills. The more you make, the less each one of them's worth. So less is more. You have to learn, Steve, to say more in less. You have to learn to let silence do the lifting. You have to learn pauses, timing, patience, attention. I 
I'm asking for God to give me wisdom. I don't know where to take them. Somebody gets halfway through a thing in their life, and they look at me for an answer, and sometimes I just want to go, well, I don't know what you're going to do. You need to see a counselor. When in reality, the counselor is no better prepared than I am if they don't know how to listen. So I'm asking God to teach me to listen for wisdom. So that I might know when to push them and when to back off. And I might know what specifically to push them to. I'm asking God to give me here a word of encouragement. Every one of us has a deep-seated fear which we cover with layers of activity, busyness. Most of the conversation that you will have this week will not come close to that fear because nobody knows what it is. But as God helps me to know and discern this person and I'm able to detect that fear, I'm asking He will give me a word from the Lord like a laser into the heart of that fear. Because all other talk will not change them. It won't help them. When His Word hits their deepest fear, it will dissolve. So the discipline of discerning God's voice rests on two things. One is a discipline of presence. When I discern God's voice, I am embedding myself inside the community that God has entrusted to my care. Listen, please. I'm not sending people Facebooks. I'm not texting them. I am fully present in a conversation. You ever talk to someone who, while they were talking to you, kept texting somebody else? You ever talk to someone who, while they were looking at you, kept looking over your shoulder at someone else? Like, it's like you're the second person, the booby prize, the one they really want. When God calls me to presence, He's calling me to be fully present in the conversation that I'm in, not imagining a different conversation and not thinking about what I'm going to say when they're through talking. He is calling me to be present at someone's side when they're in a crisis. I won't send something. I won't send somebody. I won't Facebook them, text them. I will go. I said to you last week, sheep find shepherds when they're in a crisis. They don't know who their shepherd is until they wander or a crisis comes. And when it happens, they look around them and the shepherd is the one who showed up. So the ministry of presence is a ministry of community, of interpretation for the people that God has entrusted to my care. There's one other. 
It's the ministry of absence. Just like we teach people how to be fully present in the moment, how to listen well, how to be at the right functions, how to exchange courtesies with people. We have to teach ourselves how to be away from people. If this one is a ministry of community, this one is a ministry of solitude. So if this one is all about interpreting the Word of God for the people, this one is about interceding for the people under my care. Wait. When I intercede, I don't just pray. I don't pray for all three to twelve people at one time. I pray for one person over an extended period of time. So I'm not praying for five people in one hour. I might pray for five hours for one person. Stretched out over a week. What am I praying? I am going back to the thing I know about them. And I am putting myself in between them and the shepherd. And I am arguing their case. I am asking for him to do to me whatever he wants to do to them. That can take hours. But because we spend so much time on one person stretched out, the Word from the Lord has time to grow inside of us while we are listening to Him. He doesn't utter something and then I run out and tell them. He may say something and I will give it time. And if it's God's Word, it will get deeper and heavier the further it gets from the first time. Every other word will diminish. So the more I stretch it out, and the more I intercede for them, the more certain I am at the end of the week that this is the thing the Lord is trying to say to them. And because I do this, this person now has possibilities that didn't exist before. Now watch. Some of us in the room are really good at presence. You know how to be with people. You have natural people skills. You get in a room and your eyes light up. I come home from a meeting and my wife says, who was there? I say, I don't know. She does not care about what we talked about. She cares about who was there. I usually say, if they didn't talk, I didn't see them. She'll say, well, how can you be in a meeting and not know who's there? I'll say, I don't know. But why would you go to a meeting if you don't say anything? She'll say, I don't know. I'll say, so neither one of us knows. 
We're wired differently. Some of you are wired for people, community, interpreting what you hear from God. But if you do not learn to be often and alone with God, your answers will be shallow and contrived. You'll end up quoting somebody else, not the Lord. Listen to me. The shelf life on a word from the Lord can be pretty short. So you can't run around and borrow somebody else's wisdom and start doling it out as though you were the pharmacist that just hands out the prescription. You will have to get alone with God and actually mix the stuff. But just like some of you are wired for this and you need this, others of you are like me. You are wired for this and we need this. Here's why. Because if we do not take what God has given us and move into a community and share it, we will start taking ourselves too seriously. We may be deep, but we will be septic ingrown, narrow, impractical. The reason God utters so many things is for the benefit of others. So while you are given to one, they really need each other.